Well, good evening, Auburn Christian Student Center. I am uh, currently in my uh, closet office at my house speaking into a microphone. And so this is unusual because usually when I'm teaching you guys um, about the scriptures, I'm actually not usually all the time I'm teaching you guys about the scriptures. I'm standing in front of you, um, opening up the Bible and talking to you guys, but instead I'm talking to a microphone. So this is unusual. It's an unusual time. Um, I, uh, I, I want to begin by saying that I miss you guys. I, I love my job. I'm an extrovert and, uh, and I love being around college students. I love talking about Jesus. I love teaching the scriptures. And so it's, it's been hard when suddenly everything gets put not on pause, but just canceled and everyone returns home. And with the social distancing, I can't really see any of you. And I've been able to keep in touch with a few of you through video chatting and through uh, texting and um, and whatnot. But uh, for most of you, I won't get to see you until the fall. And so it's been a difficult time, um, but it's an unusual time. And, and I hope that you're making the most of this time. I know your classes are still ongoing. Um, and, and, uh, so that is busy and that has uh, thrown a lot of stress upon you. I'm just trying to figure out how to make that work. And I know the assignments have changed and the way you're doing projects have changed and the testing has changed and that's made it stressful. But I hope that this can be a time of spiritual growth, of both physical and spiritual rest and of service. Let me, let me just say on that last point that, um, even though we have complete, uh, kind of, uh, completely shut down our society. Um, there are still opportunities for you to serve. You can encourage people through texting, through phone calls. Um, you can uh, grocery shop for your elderly neighbors. Uh, you can encourage your parents um, and your grandparents. This is a scary time for a lot of people. Um, the coronavirus outbreak is severe. Um, a lot of people are worried about whether they or loved ones will survive. I mean, um, when's the last time that, that so many people in our society have seen going to the grocery store? as a potentially life-threatening trip. And so um, you can be a huge encouragement to people. And beyond all that, uh, and, and, and above all that, you can be praying for people and serving them that way. And so I hope you'll continue to do that. Uh, again, I miss you guys. I, I hate that I'm, I'm sitting before a microphone talking rather than standing before you guys talking to you and, and listening to you guys reflect upon the life of Jesus. Um, but again, it's an unusual time. And um, I know uh, for a lot of you, um, you had internships, maybe some job interviews lined up and those have been canceled. And I want you to know that I, I am, I'm praying for you guys. I hate that your plans have been so disrupted and that this have made, has made so many of your futures um, less uh, clear and less certain. But um, but we know that God is still God and God is going to see uh, see us through this. Um, and so even though it's not ideal, um, we uh, I, I want uh, for our ministry to continue to try to stay connected. Um, obviously, we're doing that through a lot of different things. But one way um, is, as you've seen, those words of encouragement videos. And I'm so grateful to all of you who've done those. Um, but another way is I want us to continue to journey through the Gospel of Mark, seeing Jesus as Mark presents him, allowing our faiths to be deepened, allowing our lives to be shaped as we encounter Jesus um, can, uh, through these stories. And, and as almost all of you are aware of, we're concluding a two-year study of Mark. And I'm so disappointed that, that we're having to conclude these last few lessons uh, this way, um, separate from one another. But as we as we conclude, I want us to continue to, to wrestle with what it means to be followers of Jesus. And so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be recording these lessons. They'll be shorter. I'm so used to getting to the, having the luxury of talking to you 
um, you all for, for 40, 45, 50 minutes. It's maybe a luxury for me, not so much for you, um, but about these stories. And it's so hard for me to look at one of these stories with all that's happening and all the different things that we can learn from them and, and reduce it to 15 minutes. But I'm going to give it an a chance. Now, this introduction has been almost five minutes, so this will probably be a little bit over 15 minutes this time um, uh, and maybe more. Who knows? Uh, but <clears throat> nonetheless, um, we're going to continue to look at Jesus, looking at the things that he did. You know, at times at the Gospel of Mark, he was hinting um, at, at who he was, at what the kingdom of God was going to mean. And other times he openly declared that he is uh, the Messiah. Or, or at least his actions openly declared that. Think about the triumphal entry, in, uh, in entry um, into Jerusalem. Um, and and he was showing people through hints, through displays of power, through teachings, through through uh, the, these amazing uh, um, events that happened, that he was the Messiah, that he was the one that God had promised was going to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And so we're, we're looking at the story today, and it's Jesus before um, some of the leading men in Israel, the, um, the, uh, um, um, uh, the Sanhedrin. And he's on trial. Uh, really what I think is going on is not so much a formal trial, but they're interrogating him, trying to find uh, a charge against him, trying to find something that will stick so they can send him to the Romans to be executed. And to kind of get our mindset into looking at this story, um, I, I want us to be. I, I want to begin by getting you to think about this question: How would you design a test to see if Jesus really was the Messiah? How would you design a test to see if Jesus really was the Messiah? Now, to make this a little more difficult, think about if you were a first-century Jewish person, how would you design a test to see if Jesus really were, uh, really was the Messiah? Now, let me give you an example um, about this. I. Uh, uh, I began my full-time ministry career uh, as the campus minister at Western Kentucky University. And when we moved there in 2011, um, I remember being amazed at how many people there um, was were obsessed with college basketball. Because, see, even though Auburn's basketball team has been doing great the last uh, few years, uh, throughout most of my life, that's not been the case. And so growing up an Auburn fan and going to Auburn, college basketball was not a big deal. Football was, but basketball was not. And so when I arrived at Kentucky, I, I entered into a state where college basketball was a huge deal and college football was not a big deal. And so um, uh, in Kentucky, the big rivalry was between, uh, is between Louisville and the universe, University of Kentucky. And most of the people in my ministry, even though I was at Western Kentucky University, were Kentucky fans, but there were a few Louisville fans. And I remember one time walking into an argument where a Louisville fan was, was adamantly arguing that Louisville was a better team than Kentucky. Now, this year, I mean, that, that, that year, Kentucky and Louisville had played, I think, two times, and Kentucky had won both games. But this guy was adamant that, um, that Louisville was the better team. So I just, uh, I walked in, I listened to it for a few minutes, and, uh, and, and, and kind of wanting to bring rationality to the discussion. I just I, I interjected. I said, hey, um, to the Louisville fan, I said, hey, let, just forget about Louisville and Kentucky for a moment. Just think about two basketball teams. He said, okay. So team A, team B. I said, how would you design a test to see which basketball team was the best team? And he thought for a second, not very long, but he thought, and he said, well, have them play a game. And I was like, well, 
is there anything else you're doing? He said, well, have them play multiple games. And I said, well, how would you see who was the best team? And for some reason, throughout this, it didn't click to him how this was applying to his <laughs> uh, his argument about Louisville being the better team. And, if, and he said, well, whoever wins the most games. And, and then it kind of clicked with him at that point. Uh, the irony that he had moments before argued that Louisville had been the better team, but then when he objectively thought about how to test for who was the best, best, best basketball team, he set up a test that Louisville failed. And uh, before you judge this guy and think that he's so stupid, just realize that sometimes our own beliefs fail the very test that we design for them. Some of you might have done this with a relationship. That you you maybe have been in a dating relationship where it was not healthy, um, you know, uh, uh, purity, boundaries, emotionally healthy, um, all that. And uh, but you were oblivious to it. Now, at the same time, if if you would have had a friend that was seeking your advice about a relationship, you could have set up a test. You could have set up objectives or values or components of a, of a healthy relationship. And uh, so, so notice the irony there is that the very test that you would set up to determine if a relationship was healthy, your relationship failed. Um, some of you might do this with the very degree you're pursuing. If you were to advise a friend over what makes a wise degree choice, you might set up certain values, set up certain conditions that your very degree choice failed. You know, maybe you would tell them not to not to choose a degree based upon whether you'll get rich or not, but then that's really what's motivating your degree choice. And so, so often in life, we, um, we make decisions that objectively, if we set up tests um, for what was a wise decision or we're in relationships or whatever, make um, uh, pursue careers where our own beliefs, our own actions cannot test, cannot pass the test that we would objectively set up for them, right? And if you think about it, um, this is one of the difficulties for us getting a clear view of Jesus. And I think clearly seeing um, some of the tension in the very story we're about to see um, is that if you were a first century Jewish, Jewish person, um, you and you were testing for, for who was the Messiah, right? At this point in the story, Jesus is getting pretty close to failing it. Um, so far, he's not shown the political interest, I mean, in the sense of wanting to kick out the Romans um, that you would have wanted. But he's certainly shown empowerment by the Spirit. He's a great teacher. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He makes his move into Jerusalem where his followers kind of um, uh, take him into Jerusalem. Right. He's he's, uh, um, you know, kind of odd in that he's attacking the uh, establishment. Um, and, uh, and, and and all that. But nonetheless, um, you, you at this point could still think that Jesus could be the very Messiah sent by God, but then he gets arrested, right? And that was the lesson that Blair taught for us a couple of weeks ago, uh, recorded for us. Again, our first lesson that was uh, not in person, but just recorded. Uh, but he gets arrested. And so why would, if you had a test set up, would, would, you, would you think that a person who got arrested but temple guards could actually pass the test of being the Messiah, being the Christ, being the one sent by God to set up the kingdom of God. Would you really think that Jesus is the one who's empowered by God and yet these men can arrest him? And then this deepens even more because the story we're looking at today is the trial of Jesus. And in this, Jesus has taken before um, some of the, um, I mean, it's often called the trial of Jesus. Again, I think what's happening, is, and, and I'll, um, 
explain this in just a second. I think what's happening is that they're trying, they're interrogating Jesus. It's an informal trial, you might say, to try to determine what's the best charge um, to send him before Pilate so that the, uh, um, the Romans will arrest him. But he's before these men, and he certainly appeal, appears powerless. And so if you were to set up a test for whether Jesus was the king sent by God, the one empowered by God, the arrest story and this story certainly makes it appear that he fails that test. And so um, if, if you're following along your Bibles, and I hope you are, but um, I know some of you are listening to this while you're driving or working or whatnot, um, and so I'll be reading uh, the passage. But it's Mark chapter 14, verses 53 um, through 65. And uh, remember that, that moments before Jesus had been arrested uh, in the garden after the betrayal by Judas. And in verse 53, Mark says, They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. So these are the most powerful, the most respected men um, in Jerusalem. And they come together, and um, they, the, uh, as we'll find out, they're, they're not at uh, um they're not at the temple. They're at the home of the chief priest. And so they bring Jesus to the, to the home of the chief priest. And all these men uh, gather together. Now, at this time, as, as you guys are well aware, um, Rome controls um, uh, 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 Judea. And so one thing that the Romans did not allow the, the, Ju the, uh, the um, Judeans to do is to execute people. That was something that was reserved um, for uh, the uh, for Rome to to actually provide that level of punishment, um, and so uh, so obviously we have instances of mobs who obviously take kind of vig vigilante justice upon people. We see um, that happening in the scriptures, say with the first martyr, uh, uh, first Christian martyr Stephen. Um, but they but the uh, the Jewish leaders here know that they have to find a reason that the Romans should kill Jesus, and so um, the, it's not just that he teaches uh, false theology because that's not going to be enough. So they're looking for some reason to have him executed. And so they bring him to the chief priest's house in verse 54. And you've got to kind of picture this like a scene from a movie where um, um, where the camera is following Jesus being dragged into this house. And then all of a sudden it cuts away to Peter. Remember, Peter had, uh, uh, Jesus had said, you're going to betray me. Peter's there when he gets arrested. We know from other gospels that Jesus resisted, um, resisted that, um, and, um, and, 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 but Jesus did not, I mean, uh, Peter says he's not going to deny Jesus. And so Jesus is arrested and, um, Peter's following him and Peter follows him to the, the house of the, the, the chief priests. And so again, you get this, um, it's like the camera is following Peter now as he enters into the courtyard of the house of the, of the, of the high priest, um, uh, uh, upper class homes in this time were built around open courtyards and, uh, they were enclosed on all four sides. And so, and uh, this time of the year in Judea, it would have been chilly at night. So Peter, it says, he, he comes into the courtyard of the high priest and he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. And that's going to set up um, the next story where Peter actually betrays or disowns Jesus. But so, um, so Peter comes to his house. He's sitting there. My understanding is there would be windows to where he can sit there, warm himself by the fire and still kind of keep tabs on what's happening in the room in the house where Jesus is with all these leaders as they interrogate him. And so the, the scene cuts back to, to the room and it's kind of this dramatic scene where Jesus is there, he's arrested. And again, keep this in mind that this is supposed to be the powerful one uh, sent by God 
the anointed one, the one with the spirit of God, who's come to bring the kingdom of God. And yet here he is in the house of the high priest arrested. Um, and it says, verse 55, no, 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 recognize just the, um, 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 uh, recognize the, uh, um, how crooked this is, right? The chief priest in the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Verse 56, many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. So in other words, Jesus is having to sit there while, um, just think about the dishonor of this, that he's having to stand there, sit or stand there, I don't really know, while they uh, while they look for reasons to have him executed. And they're bringing in witnesses. And so Mark wants you to get the picture that they're taking up time because they're bringing in people who've heard Jesus say things or at least are lying, that they've, uh, you know, um, lying about having heard him say things. And they're testifying against him. But the problem is that all these witnesses are contradicting themselves, right? So they're not saying the same things. And so they're sitting here trying to place false charges against Jesus. But even these, these false witnesses cannot get their stories straight. Um, and so Jesus, the most, you know, the, the, the empowered one, the Holy One of God is having to stand there arrested while they try to kind of come up with trumped up charges against him. And in verse 57, it says, some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with human hands and in three days will build another not made with hands. And even then their testimony did, did not agree. So again, um, um, Mark highlights the specific accusation. Um, and I think the reason is, is because it's so close to something that Jesus did say in the Gospel of Mark and in the other Gospels, um, that the temple was going to be destroyed. Now, um, he didn't say he was going to destroy it, um, but he did say that it was that he would rebuild it. And obviously later, uh, later on, Christians saw that as prophecy, that he was the temple, that, that this Jesus was the place where like the temple was the place where heaven, met, heaven and earth met. Jesus would be the one in his resurrected body where heaven and earth met. Um, so Mark records this because um, some of these, these opponents of Jesus had heard him say something about the temple. And they were trying to, um, trying to get people, these false witnesses, to, to kind of make a coherent accusation about that against Jesus, but they couldn't, they couldn't do it. Um, so you get, you get the picture that over time you get, uh, maybe the course of hours, Jesus is standing there where one witness after another comes up and says things and they're all false they're all contradicting one another. And then verse 60, it says, then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? Verse 61, but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. So again, uh, you, know, you just got to get the picture of Peter's outside, warming his hands by the fire. He can you know, maybe uh, see in and hear what's happening. And in standing there, uh, in standing in that room with all these leaders, uh, some of the most powerful men, uh, interrogating Jesus, um, you know, they've been wanting to have him killed for a while now. And Jesus is standing there and all these false witnesses are coming, saying things, misrepresenting Jesus, misquoting Jesus. Um, and Jesus doesn't say anything and he doesn't need to say anything because they're contradicting themselves. Right. But he doesn't say anything. So the most powerful person, the one empowered by God, the one that these Christians, these followers are saying that he's the Messiah. This guy is silent. While he's under arrest, while people are lying about him, trying to find a reason to have him executed, is that someone who passed the test of who would be the king sent by God? Verse 60. I mean, verse 61, um, the second part. 
Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? So he just directly asked Jesus, Are you the Christ? Are you the Anointed One? Are you the one that God has sent? And he uses this um, he uses this, this phrase, the Son of the Blessed One, which is interesting. Um, first off, because uh, now the Blessed One being God, uh, um, Jewish people did not like to directly say the name of God, and so they find uh, um, ways of talking around it and not saying it. And so one way is that they would uh, say Lord instead of God. Um, we know, in, for example, if, if you're familiar with the Gospel of Matthew, it talks about the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God. And, they, uh, um, and so they find all these ways um, they had all these different ways of talking about God without using the name of God. And so the blessed one was, is that. And so he's saying, are you the Messiah? Are you the son of God? And so he, this, this is a, a time when Jesus, uh, this is the point in, in this interrogation where Jesus is not silent. Because he says in verse 62, I am, said Jesus. So he says, I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God. I'm the son of the blessed one. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And so Jesus, in doing this, combines he, he uh, combines two passages, one from Psalm 110, verse 1, and the other from Daniel 7, verse 13. So Psalm 110, verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now this was something that elsewhere in the Gospel of Mark gets discussed, um, and it's something that early Christians really saw as a prophecy about Jesus. Uh, but then Jesus also combines that with this statement from uh, this quotation from Daniel 7.13 that we've seen. Um, it talks about the Son of Man. And, and this is the verse where Jesus gets that phrase and, and he gets that name that he applies to himself, the Son of Man, over and over again in the Gospel of Mark. And it says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a Son of Man, Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. And so Jesus combines this and he says, I am the Messiah. And make no mistake about it, he's saying to the most powerful men, he's saying, make no mistake about it, you will see me seated at the right hand of God. And you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. Now this isn't referring to the second coming of Jesus. If you were there when we studied Mark chapter 13, and we saw all these um, prophecies that sometimes we read as, as Jesus talking about when he's going to come back. Um, but I think what's going on here is that Jesus is really using language of when he gets, you might, you might say, when he gets enthroned, um, when he, gets, when he uh, gets handed the keys of the kingdom. Um, and, uh, and one of the reasons to think this is that he says to these men, you will see it. So in other words, it's not that, they, that these men will see Jesus return to earth after the thousands of years of the church growing and growing and growing. Instead, he's saying that you will see um, me being enthroned. You will see the power. You will see me being vindicated by God. Um, and so Jesus uses this language of he's sitting at the right hand of God. He will sit at the right hand of God. He will come in the clouds, um, combining these two Old Testament passages to assert his authority, to assert his position, to insert, to assert um, that he will be vindicated by God. And so it's a powerful moment in this, in this, uh, in this, uh, in this room. 
in this scene. Again, you got a picture that Jesus has been silent. They've had all these false witnesses. They're contradicting themselves. And, and when it seems like maybe they're not going to have a coherent charge against Jesus, they say, um, he just asks, are you the Messiah? And Jesus responds in this amazing way saying, yes, and you will see me be vindicated by God. You will see me be empowered and enthroned uh, 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 by God. And at this, it says, verse 63, the high priest tore his clothes, which was um, uh, um, um, an action of grief. No doubt in this case, uh, um, kind of uh, dramatic kind of, uh, kind of acting in this case, um, but it was a, a symbolic expression of grief. Um, sometimes um, in Jewish tradition, they record that when people were um, put on trial for having blasphemed God, having offended God, um, that they would, um, um, that the way that the judges, once they heard the, the blasphemous expression, that they would tear their garments as expressions of grief and kind of as judgments against the person who is blaspheming God. In other words, grieve that somebody would say such blasphemous things against God. And so when the high priest tears his clothes, he says, why do we need any more witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? In other words, he says to all these men there, look, we don't need to try to build a case. We don't need to try to bring in people who say they've heard Jesus say this, heard Jesus say that, because in our very presence, Jesus has blasphemed. And what was the, what was the blasphemy here? Um, it's probably that Jesus says he was sitting at the right hand of the mighty one. In other words, they were offended that Jesus was saying that he would have that kind of status, that closeness, that kind of uh, um, equality with God. And so that was the blasphemy. And it says that they all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fist and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. And so this dramatic scene, it, it, it kind of comes to this penultimate moment where Jesus, uh, uh, Jesus, I picture him standing up and, and saying that he, that they would see him coming um, sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And he makes the statement clearly saying his relationship with God, clearly claiming to be the Messiah. And the high priest tears his garments and they, he looks at all the other people and says, obviously Jesus is worthy of death because he's blaspheming. And now they have it. They have the reason they want to kill him. They, uh, they, they, uh, they begin to beat him. They begin to spit on him. They blindfold him and just picture that. Here is Jesus after making this high statement, one of the highest statements in the Gospel of Mark of his identity. And it leads not to power, not to being enthroned, not to the kingdom of God obviously being given to him, but it leads to him being spat upon, being blindfolded, being beaten, being mocked. So does Jesus pass your test of what the Messiah would look like? Would Jesus pass the test of any first century Jewish person who is watching this? I mean, certainly someone who is arrested, falsely accused, mocked, beaten, blindfolded, spat upon, Surely that person isn't the Messiah. How easy it is at this moment to look and, and, and to say, Jesus isn't responding the way we want him to respond, the way we would think he would respond. That if he really did have the power of God, there's so much more that he could do.
And of course, imagine being a disciple, one of the disciples at this moment. You're scared. You're hopeless. Your dreams of Jesus being the Messiah are quickly fading away. Things aren't turning out how you expect them to turn out. Maybe you're even grieving. I mean, we know many of them were in hiding. If not at this point, then shortly afterwards. And Jesus is in a small room somewhere in Judea, somewhere in Jerusalem, being beaten, spat upon, blindfolded, mocked, falsely accused. And this was the man that you had said had the Spirit of God. Notice the difficulty, notice the tension here, that Jesus doesn't look like you would expect him to look if he were the Messiah. He's not responding in the way that you would expect him to respond. And yet, as Christians, we, Christians, we look back on this moment and we see Jesus as being fully in control. We see Jesus as being powerful and because of his plans, not exercising that power. power. And at this moment, when he's not passing the test that we set up for him, that we would have set up for him at that time for the Messiah, we look back and we see Jesus as actually enacting a plan that would lead to something greater than we would have imagined if we were one of his first century followers, and that is the cross. That in the midst of being beaten and mocked, he's working towards the greatest event in human history, the death and resurrection. And I think that this story is a perfect one for where we are in our faiths at this time in the world. I mean, thousands of people are dying, hundreds of thousands are sick, billions of people are terrified. And it's a natural thing to say, where's God? Because God's not showing up how we would want him to. God's not showing up maybe how you would expect him to. And we're scared. We're uncertain of the future. We're grieving. And I think that this is an important story for us because it reminds us that yes, sometimes we set up tests for God that God doesn't pass. Yes, sometimes God doesn't act in the way that we expect him to act. He doesn't respond in the way that he, we expect him to respond. That yes, we're terrified and frightened and our future is uncertain and our hope is fading. And God seems to not do anything. But this story reminds us that often in the midst of those fearful moments, often at the very times when God is not responding in the way that we expect him to respond, he is present, he's powerful, he's in control. Jesus in this moment, before these men falsely accusing and beaten and spitting upon him, he was in control, he was powerful, he was the Holy One of God. Even though he didn't seem to be in control, seemed to be powerful, 
seem to be the Holy One of God. But the looks can be deceiving. What it means to be a disciple, we learn from this story, is that there are these times when Jesus fails the test we place for him. He doesn't intervene. He doesn't react the ways that we want him to. But what it means to be a disciple is in those moments, we exercise our faith and we suspend our judgment. We suspend these tests we would place upon him. And we trust that in the midst of our fear, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the uncertainty, that Jesus is king, that he's in control, and that he's up to something that is beyond our imagination and that will surprise us. And so I think this story calls us in the midst of all this uncertainty and fear and grief in our world currently, it calls us to a faith in Jesus, a faith that's difficult because he's not doing what we want or what we expect but our faith calls us to trust him and hope that you continue to trust Jesus and to follow him, even when it's messy, even when it's difficult. I appreciate you guys listening. I am uh, clearly a liar because I'm at 33 minutes at this point, and I said 15 minutes. Um, I will try to do better next week, but as always, I talk for way longer than I plan to talk. Um, but this story is so rich, and there's so much more I wish we could have talked about, but I hope that it helps you um, see the story in a new light. I hope it helps deepen your faith. Um, again, I miss you guys. Um, I hope you um, continue to stay uh, safe. I hope you continue to stay healthy. Um, and I hope that you continue to grow in your faith in Jesus.